누구 마음먹은 사람이 이용 들었겠어요? 그런데 왜 하필 학교에서 그랬대요? 고3 때 다니셨다고 그랬죠? 누구보다 상심이 크시겠어요 빈교실에 혼자 들어가는 게 무서워서 같이 가고 싶었어 걔 별거 없어요 귀신 좀잘 치는 거 말고 아침에 정수기가 먼저 와있었단 얘기 그 인간 죽이고 싶지 어젯밤에 뭔가를 확인하신다길래 전 그냥 중요한 걸 찾으시나 보다 하고만 생각했지 그 학교에서 자살했다는 애? 그가 소속실 친구였어? 뭘 확인하시는 것 같았어요? 걘 틀림없이 죽었지 근데 여기 있어 계속 학교를 다니고 있어 미친 개를 직접 죽이기라도 한것 같은 기분이야 늙은 여우가 죽은 날처럼 기분이 이상해 귀신이잖아 Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. I'm John and with me as always my co-host Jason. Jason, how are you doing today? Not so bad, not so good. <laughs> All right, same here, not so bad, but could always be better. Um, so today we'll continue our coverage of 90s Asian cinema with another, another Korean double feature, Uh, where we'll talk about the first two films of the Whispers, Whispering Corridors franchise, Whispering Corridors, released in 1998, and Memento Mori, released in 1999. But before we get into that, uh, we do our usual segment, where we'll talk about what we've been watching or reading in the last couple of weeks. So Jason, why don't you go first? Yeah, so I think it's about uh, three weeks since we last recorded anything. Um, yeah. And during that time, I've watched uh, quite a lot of things. Uh, thanks to Amazon Prime and also Japan Cuts. So uh, what I've been able to watch on Amazon Prime, uh, basically the free stuff, is uh, The Hunt um, by ah, the director of Festin. Um, Vinterberg, oh, okay. Thomas Vinterberg. Yes, Thomas Vinterberg, starring Mads Mikkelsen. Uh, I watched uh, Cinema Paradiso, um, Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half, um, Evolution. I came off uh, X-Files uh, journey and went straight into evolution uh personal favorite of mine is evolution the one with uh christian ba or is that a tv series that you're talking about uh is that equilibrium you're thinking of oh i'm thinking of equilibrium yeah okay sorry never mind yeah evolution's the one with david duchovny and um uh juliette uh, julianne moore and uh, interesting um, yeah i've heard it's like um there was involvement from the ghostbusters team in the making of the script Uh, which is why Dan Aykroyd shows up, and um, Ivan Reitman's the director. And yeah, it's it's a broad comedy, and uh, there's uh, references to the X Files in it. Uh, I see. Well, yeah, it sounds it sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. And um, I also watched um, the Battle of Algiers, that old '60s film. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. 
back when um, France was a colonial power, and um, people still like military uh, militaries around the world still use that film as uh, to train soldiers on how to do urban warfare and deal with terrorism. And um, interesting, like a lot of the stuff in the film still applies today in modern conflicts like Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm. Um, I watched the 2013 Evil Dead remake, which is not a patch on the first film. It's like too focused on violence and body horror. Uh, very grim, vapid characters. Uh, I, I watched. The... I've I've seen the original trilogy, but I have not seen the remake of Evil Dead. Yeah, like out of the original trilogy, Evil Dead Two: Dead by Dawn is probably head and shoulders the best of the three. The second one, yeah, it it is the best. I I was I could never get into the third one. I found it it was a bit too too different. I mean, the second one is already very different from the first one. It's it's almost like the director changed his mind and said, I'm going to redo the same film and take a completely different tone. But the third one seemed to be almost like a caricature of the second one. Not that it wasn't enjoyable, but it, I don't know, it didn't quite appeal to me as much. Yeah, the second one, Evil Dead 2, is basically a remake of the first one, only it's like taken a comedy route. And um, Bruce Campbell allows his charm free reign. Yeah, it's uh, the third one's cartoony. It's got some killer lines in it, though. Um, I also watched the 1990s horror movie Wishmaster and uh, the Suspiria remake from 2018, which I thought was fantastic. Okay. Just uh, like um, Dario Argento's original is a, is a good film. The Suspiria remake goes in a completely different direction, just totally different tone. What's, the, what's the name of the director? The Italian director, right? Uh, Luca, he did um, Call Me By Your Name. Yeah, which I and and I obviously it's a it's a highly acclaimed film, so I understand I'm in the minority here, but I did not enjoy that film at all. I felt I felt it was a, a, just a very uh, not a terrible film, but a, a, here, here's here. Let me summarize that film: a, a rich kid from America goes on vacation to Italy, gets laid, and that's the end of it. Like that's <laughs> there's there's no reason for that. There's no conflict to that. There's no reason for it to exist. I felt, I felt so isolated when I couldn't understand why anybody liked that film. So I said, fine. Hey, I'm I'm hands. I'm not touching this director again because he's clearly doing something that I don't quite get. So I'm I I haven't seen anything else that he might have done. He's done. So that's why I didn't touch that Suspiria remake. Well, like I'd say, give the Suspiria remake a go because, um, like story wise, it builds on the original tremendously. Uh, by giving, uh, like, taking a Berlin setting and um, referencing World War Two, uh, actually using the dance school and dances, and um, interweaving that with how the witches uh, operate and uh, kill their prey, and the whole tone of the film is just really persuasive, and it's got a great score by Tom York of Radiohead. Okay. I'll, I'll give it if I can find it. I'll I'll give it a chance. Yeah, it's on um, Amazon Prime. I think. Okay. Um, Suspiria. The original is also on Amazon Prime as well. Okay, great. And uh, I've watched uh, The Count of Monte Cristo, Gankutsu, The Count of Monte Cristo, the anime. And um, that made me want to read the original novel. And um, I looked at the page count. It's over a thousand pages. But uh, <laughs> I mean, it's a great, I'm, a great I don't know story. If I'm, yeah, I don't know if I'm, I might have. I might have mentioned this in the somehow this. Uh, I'm having a bit of a deja vu with this conversation, but uh uh, the if you can find an abridged version, I don't know. I mean, there are a lot of these older adventure novels. They tend to have abridged versions. I'd recommend getting the abridged versions. Not that the original isn't fantastic, but there is a lot of um, uh, shall I 
call it fluff, that I think could be easily removed. A lot of long conversations that, you know, can be entertaining if you get into it. Like florid descriptions. Yeah, exactly. Uh, or, or alternatively, uh, there's free audiobooks of that because it's in the public domain. And uh, there was one free audiobook. I've, I've read the book more than once. Uh, and uh, the la my latest was an audiobook from LibriVox, which is public domain. And the guy who was reading it was fantastic with his uh, various voices and trying to keep everything in, in check. So it was, I, I'd recommend that as well. It's uh, you know, probably easier than reading the thousand page book. Okay. So yeah, I'd like yeah. If you have a chance, maybe you would like to watch um the anime adaptation, which uh transposes the original story into a sci-fi setting, thousands of years into the future. Well, yeah. So there's uh there's a I'm wondering if it's related to Alfred Bester's The Stars My Destination because that that what it is. It's a uh, it's a, a remake, a retelling of the Count of Monte Cristo in the future. I've never read that. Does it have to do? It, does that anime have to do anything with teleporting? No, no, no. Okay, it's... never mind. Because teleporting is a big thing in that one. Then. Oh yeah, well that uh, a Greek ship <laughs> questions over teleporting. Ba -ba -ba. And uh, yeah, uh, in terms of Japan cuts, um, I uh, reviewed um, among four of us, and I interviewed the director. Uh, Mayu Nakamura. Um, I reviewed School Radio to Major Tom, um, Marry and Marry, and uh, To Sleep So As to Dream. All of those are up on V Cinema. There's uh, one more review to go up soon. Nice. And um, that's been sort of, uh, my uh, cultural journey over the last three weeks. All right. Yeah. That's that. I mean, that's that's uh, quite a bit. I, I I unfortunately did not get to to view to watch as many films because it sort of like we discussed off of the air, uh, if that's an appropriate phrase for a podcast. But uh, of the air, we talk about how I was moving into new city, so uh, that process kind of sort of kept me busy for at least a full week. But I did manage to watch one film from Japan Cats and that from Japan Cuts. That was a it's a summer film. Hmm. I saw your review. With the director, yes, it was. Um, it was. I enjoyed the film. It was an interesting film, but I felt it was too cliche, uh, or uh, or there were too many cliches and too many overused tropes in that film to make it a little bit better or better than it was. But it was still an enjoyable film. I'd recommend it if you if you are trying to sort of you know a a light hearted teen comedy, teen romance film with a little bit of science fiction in it. Then I think it's a fine film. I rewatched The Hangover and Bridesmaids mm -hmm. only because I hadn't seen them in since they'd come out, and I always remember having this argument with people that they are that people telling me that they are better than the average comedy, and me sort of disagreeing. So I rewatched them finally to see if there was something because I remember when I first watched them when they came out, I, I I had a relatively low opinion of both of them. I think having rewatched them, I think I would agree that they are perhaps better than your average comedies starring usually the same people, but uh, not by much. I thought Bridesmaids what was better than The Hangover uh, in certain respects, and then The Hangover was better than The Bridesmaids in certain other, in other respects, particularly in 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 its story it was a reasonably original story but i still don't 
don't consider either of those films as groundbreaking as some people claim it to be, or so how, the, how popular culture has kind of made them out to be, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but they're fun films. Yeah. Uh, uh, what else? I... Oh yeah, I do this every whenever I have a free time or you know like I was on a plane uh this time uh I go on the internet and I find I download a bunch of old uh science fiction or pulp magazines and I read the stories from them. Oh. And there's so many of them that my ultimate goal is to find some hidden gem that nobody has discovered yet and maybe try to try to to discover something old yet new, but uh, so far I've been out of luck. Although there are a lot of interesting stories in those old magazines, there's nothing that I, I can kind of, I think, says jump out and, oh, this is, a, this is a hidden gem from the 40s that nobody remembers, yet it's worth, it's worth uh, considering in the, modern a- in the modern age. But it's still fun reading those old magazines and trying to read some old science fiction. As, as I've mentioned many times uh, in the show, I'm, I'm a huge fan, so it's, kinda, it's always enjoyable for me, regardless of whether or not I find something that would be considered a, a lost gem or whatever. Did any stories stand out to you uh, when you were on the flight? Yeah, I did read in uh, a story from, I think, the 50s or the 60s by uh, actually a British author called uh, Arthur Sellings. Okay. And it was uh, a cold, and he, he was, he's a very little known writer who died young and basically published a few stories in his, in these uh, early magazines and didn't do much, but uh, it's called the tin plate teleologist. Uh, and it's about, it's about, you know, this, uh, this world where robots are servants. And once a robot is sort of released from a family that they serve, they have 21 days to find a new owner or they're decommissioned or they're, you know, destroyed. So it's about, you know, this family, they get a new model and they have to, they have to get rid of their old robot. So now the robot has to somehow find a new, uh, a new owner or report to the sender and, uh, and be destroyed. And, uh, we, we kind of follow this, this robot's journey, kind of almost like an odyssey where he goes and meets a few interesting characters and it has a lot. As a lot of uh, raises a lot of questions about sort of the meaning of free will and life and all that, and it was a really interesting and really surprisingly well written story. But then I looked, I looked up some of the authors' other stories published in at the same time, and none of them were as impressive. So this might have been a one off for this uh, for this author. Yeah, but uh, who knows? Maybe, maybe, maybe there are some others good ones that he wrote that. Um, that might be uh, fun to bring to people's attention. Yeah, that sounds like an interesting concept. It is. It is. Yeah, I mean the the old science fiction is a is a an ocean of interesting concepts. I've, unfortunately, not a lot of them made that were some of them that were good enough. Sto- that were well written stories were not necessarily great science fictional ideas, and some of them that it were really good science fiction didn't necessarily have the writing, the literature aspect of them. So a very little from that time has sort of, we still remember, like we know the main ones, Asimov, Heinlein, and, you know, a few of the main authors, but a lot of, you know, smaller authors that wrote extensively in the pulps or in the golden age, as this period is called, are kind of forgotten, even though they were, you know, noteworthy authors in their time. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I think that was my. I'm sure I I did some other stuff that I just don't remember. It's been so hectic 
uh, for the last three weeks, but I think I'm happy with uh, with those mentions. Cool. It sounds like a lot to get on with. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, so uh, this is our media consumption consumption section. We had a couple of news items that uh, we have written down here for our news segment of the episode. And uh, the first thing is the Venice Film Festival is, I think, underway as we're recording or is right about to end. Do you, I forgot to write the dates down. Did you, do you have the dates for that? Yeah, uh, the dates are September to September 11th. So there's a couple of days left. As we're, as we're, I'm not sure when this episode will be out, but as, as of the time of recording, yes, there's a, there's a, a few more days left to the, to the festival. Yeah. Were there any, uh, did you notice any interesting Asian or Japanese or, I don't know, Hong Kong films in the festival? I, I remember when I looked, there, was, there wasn't much, but perhaps I missed something. Yeah, every year I try to cover various festivals and Venice is one of them. Um, and this year they've got uh, a short film uh, by a newbie director named Momi Yamashita called The Last Day. It's 19 minutes and... Um, it stars Maho Yamada. Um, she's a great character actor. Um, she shows up in various films from time to time. Big mainstream productions, it usually bit parts. And the story is essentially um, a couple decide to get divorced. So I guess, judging by the title, this is their last day together. And um, the other film from Japan uh, was Inu O. Uh, Masaaki Yuasa's latest animation. Um, so Masaaki Yuasa, oh Masaaki Yuasa, sorry. Uh, he's like a, a genius director who made his mark with um, Mind Game um, and uh, the night short Walk On Girl and some um, TV anime like Ping Pong the Animation. And um, his latest um, is based on like an ancient uh, uh, story, um, Heike Monogatari. Inu o Nomaki. Uh, it's from, it's like, I think it's based on a true story of a performer and playwright named Inu o, whose like physical appearance is, uh, I think, it suggested that he has deformities of some sort. And um, he teams up with uh, a blind musician, and um, Inu o becomes like a, a famous no dancer uh, who enraptures everybody who uh, watches him on the stage. And the two work together um, to sort of. Um, realize the meaning of life i guess judging by the film synopsis yeah i don't think this was in the main competition wasn't it was it i don't think so yeah because I, I remember i didn't see any japanese films there so it must have been in one of those uh, uh third party competitions i, I, I don't know what they yeah, call them sidebars sidebars yes okay or, or something uh different strands yeah 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 i um i didn't look at any uh, other Asian territories? I didn't look for any other Asian territories. I think there was a a, a Philippine title, so maybe make and find it. And although, and I think we mentioned this in a previous episode, but the president, uh, the jury president, is Bong Joon Ho. Oh yeah. Um. Yes. And yes, there is a a title from the Philippines in the main competition called "On the Job Two: The Missing Eight, directed by a gentleman named Eric Matty. I suppose I haven't seen on the job one, so I would be completely lost for this one. Uh, the name rings a bell. Yeah, I think some of his films have been dis- many of it. Uh, some of his films have been screened in the West. So the second piece of news that we have, and this is sort of related to the previous uh, mentions, but this company called Eighty Eight Films 
has been releasing Jackie Chan titles uh, uh, in Blu-ray. And I think it's either both the UK or the US or only the UK. I'm not 100% sure. But their most recent release is Dragons Forever, the 1988 film uh, directed, I believe, directed by Jackie Chan. Uh, And it's uh, being released in October of uh, 2021. Uh, Was this the last time that Jackie Chan, Yoon Biao, and Sammo Hung are fought together on screen? I think so. Yes, I'm. I'm, I'm fairly certain I've seen this film, but it I, doesn't ring a strong bell. But yes, I think that you are correct in that. That it is has all three of them. I don't. I'm, I can't confirm quite that it's the last time, but it is one of the final times that they. Oh no, it is. Okay, it says here. It says on the Wikipedia that it is the last film in which Hong Chan and Biao appear together. Hmm. And I, I, I was also wrong. This is not directed by Jackie Chan. This is directed by Samo Hong and Corey Yuan. Okay. I have to admit, I haven't watched it. I've only read about it and seen clips. Uh, would you recommend it? Yes, I, I would recommend it. Oh, every, pretty much everything that has Samo Hong and Jackie Chan in it and Yuan Biao, but those, the first two are sort of big, big... Uh, they always make it fun no matter what. Yeah. Okay, um, maybe I'll seek it out. Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, the even the worst Jackie Chan of this era is pretty good. I would say it's you know that there isn't there aren't any Jackie Chan movies from you know eighties seven eighties and maybe early nineties that would say stay away from it because it's going to be terrible. It's all of any one that you can get your hands on is I think. Uh, worth your time. Some are better than others, of course, but it's all, all of them. I would say is you know watch them because they're going to be a fun time at the very least. Yeah, perhaps his worst work is uh, when he gets to Hollywood in the uh, early two thousands. Probably, I guess, I guess the the eighty five uh, Rumble in the Bronx that he did uh, might be, but even that is not a terrible movie. Yeah. It's all right. It's an all right movie. He says he's. It's a not a comedy, but that's the worst that you can say for it uh, about it. And then the the last piece of news is about Kitano. Would you like to to talk about that? Yeah. So um, a few days ago, uh, Takeshi Kitano had just finished uh, filming a TV program, and uh, he was being driven out of uh, TBS's car park. And uh, a man uh, with a pickaxe attacked his car and um, smashed the front window uh, or smashed the uh, windscreen and um, driver's side window. A security guard at the TV station um, called police and the man was subdued. And um, uh, news is still coming out, but it seems like uh, he's a Yakuza from a neighboring Chiba prefecture. And he claims that... um, Earlier on this year, he begged uh, Takeshi Kitano to teach him uh, the ropes, um, uh, how to get into showbiz, and um, he felt that Kitano had been ignoring him, and that pushed him to attack uh, Kitano. Um, Kitano, for his part, says he has no idea who this guy is. So, uh, yeah, we're still waiting for the full story to come out. Of course, yeah, consider how popular Kitano is. I. I can't imagine, in, you know, the worst possible scenario uh, with the man actually succeeding in, you know, harming or maybe even killing Kitano, how he probably would will end up being the most hated man in Japan for at least some time in the foreseeable future. <laughs> probably. 
it's I don't know if that's worth it for any you know you, no matter how Kitano may have behaved towards you you don't want that reputation no uh, well but yeah I don't know if you're Yakuza maybe you don't care I don't know well if you're Yakuza <laughs> life's tough yeah oh well anyway so I think that's it for our news segment uh, this week unless you have any anything else to add Jason um well, the Toronto International Film Festival runs from September 9th to the 18th, and um, I've done a festival post, or festival preview post, which covers the Japanese films uh, that have been programmed. And um, top of the list is Drive My Car by Ryusuke Hamaguchi, um, the adaptation of the Haruki Murakami story. And also uh, in the, on the list is Inuo. Uh, which is playing at Venice right now. And there's a short film called Earth, Earth, Earth. It's an experimental piece. So if you're in uh, Toronto, Canada, um, this is your chance to see free uh, Japanese movies. So this is, again, there's no virtual component to this festival, right? It's a hybrid event in person and online. Oh, okay. Interesting. But only people in Canada can access even the online part, right? I would assume so. Okay, makes sense. Maybe maybe North America uh, as a whole can. I have to check to check that to see if if uh, I'd be able to see any any of the. Uh, so I'm I'm actually very close to Canada right now in my new. Uh, so it'd be a short ride, but I, I of course I'm not gonna bother. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I think that that does it for our new segment. Next, we jump straight into our film discussions discussion, and just like I may, mentioned in the introduction. Today, we're doing a double feature of uh, the first two films in the Whispering Corridors franchise, The Whispering Corridor and Memento Mori. So as always, Jason, would you like to give us a plot summary for each of these films? So, uh, Whispering Corridors. Um, the setting for the film is an all-girls private high school where supernatural things are happening. A homeroom teacher named Mrs. Park figures out the source of the haunting is connected to the death of a pupil called Jinju nine years prior. But before she can tell her new fellow teacher, her ex-pupil, her Yoon Yong, played by the actress Lee Min Yon, Mrs. Park is strangled with a noose by a mysterious force and left hanging for students to discover the next day. Two of those students are Lim ji played by Kim Yuri. She's a girl with artistic and psychic abilities. And the other girl is her friend, the mousy Yoon Jae-yi, who's played by Choi si Yong. It looks like suicide, uh, but rumors spread about the ghost of Jinju. Meanwhile, a teacher named Mr. Oh, played by Park Yong-soo, takes over the class and makes them promise not to spread rumors. If they do, he'll issue out severe punishment. But when another death occurs, a terrible mystery unfolds. And the synopsis uh, for Memento Mori. A year after Whispering Corridors, Memento Mori was released on December 24th, 1999. So, at the turn of the millennium. While it is a part of the franchise, the story is totally unconnected and focuses on a doomed love and social pressures that lead to death and supernatural happenings in another all-girls school. The plot begins with Min Ah running late for class. On her way, she discovers a diary which records the strange and obsessive world of two girls at the same school who are in love with each other. The girls are class nerd Hyo Shin, played by Park Ye Jin, and school athlete Shi Yun, played by Lee Young Jin. 
uh, as Mina reads on, she becomes drawn into a forbidden love story that is told in a non-linear fashion uh, from different perspectives, including a spirit attached to the diary itself. All right. Thank you very much, Jason, for that uh, summary. So I I actually have a question. Uh, You mentioned uh, in the beginning that it is a private high school. Was that mentioned or did you did you derive that from context? So uh, in I've reviewed these films back in 2012 and in um, preparing for this podcast, I was looking up uh, different synopses and um, I found one Korean synopsis which said private high school. So I thought I'd work that in. It seemed to make sense due to the context of the film. Yeah. And I think I think most I don't know. I don't know how things work in Korea. I Maybe perhaps most girl high schools are private. Seems like, you know, public public education would not be segregated by gender. Although, I don't know. Yeah, I've, I've read somewhere that um, public uh, that high schools are quite often separated by gender. Public high schools? Yeah. Oh, interesting. I didn't know. I know. I know that segregated high schools are still a thing in South Korea because I did meet someone who went into an all-girls high school and an all-girls college. Or university, uh, and my of course my first question was, do they have men's bathrooms for the teachers? I guess for the male teachers. Yeah, that was her answer for the teachers. But I don't know. I just for some reason it didn't occur to me. So I figured, you know, you save <laughs> you save you save the money and don't bother building two kinds of bathrooms. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so this was starting jumping into our discussion. So this was a first time watch for me. But what's your history with these films? You mentioned, and I've read your reviews. You mentioned them reviewed in uh, 2012, but when was the first time you watched them, and what did you think of them the first time, and what did you think of them, you know, on, on subsequent on subsequent watches? So um, I think I was aware of them when I was in high school. Um, uh, like uh, it's like happening contemporaneously, um, and as uh, on like uh, Asian movie message boards. And um, my first encounter with the film was uh, purchasing a four-disc tartan box set, which had the first four entries in the Whispering Corridors franchise. Um, I had zero expectations, and um, I was pleasantly surprised. Um, like The first one offered sort of a traditional, slow-moving ghost story. Um, the second one was completely different. Like Each Entry in this franchise has a completely different style, as well as completely different stories. Um, and the second one was like I felt more like a fresh indie work, as, um, and uh, it tackled at the book. The two of them tackled um, different subject matters, even though the settings uh, offer sort of um, things you can compare, such as like um, pressures to um, excel in education. Um, I really liked Memento Mori a lot more than Whispering Corridors because uh, I was just I just became so much more involved in the relationship drama going on due to sort of the strong direction and camera work and the acting. Um, I wasn't too scared by any of the horror elements, so I appreciated them more as um, dramas than horror movies. So that was that would have been I said I guess the first uh, the first. Uh question that i want to ask you are these really horror films but before we get to that let me just go over my history with with the film and uh i i don't know if i mentioned this before if i i might have come up but this was a first watch i mean this was a a first watch for me i i just said that earlier but i i had also never heard of these films until we started doing this podcast and uh 
we and you suggested them as a potential as something to as a you know potential films to cover so i was you know pleasantly uh surprised or i was impressed by both films uh, i haven't seen any of the others in the franchise i just saw these two in preparation for this episode um and i was going to i was going to save this for the end but since you already mentioned what your favorite is uh, memento mori uh, my favorite was actually the first one uh although I think my feelings for both films are a little bit complicated, but I liked the first one better, even though objectively I think the second one is a better made film. Uh, but there, I had I had issues with the sec. I had a few issues with the second. I thought both films are excellent. But before we we jump into you know the topic of whether are these really horror films or are they something else or are they dramas with horror elements how would you classify this i want to ask you have you have you seen the other entries in the franchise yeah i reviewed um three and four so the third one's wishing stays and the fourth one's the voice i can remember bits and pieces of three and four but um i haven't rewatched them so i can't say too much i haven't had time to reread my reviews either so is it, if you had to sort of make an overview, would you say they are on on the level, on the same level, or do you think that there's diminishing returns as the series it's goes on? definitely diminishing returns. I um, see. Like the stories get weaker. I, I, um, like the first one has this brilliant sort of a, a political subtext running underneath. And yes. the second one has this um, sort of battle over sexuality, which is really strongly felt. And um, the third and fourth ones amp up the horror um but i didn't feel uh like drawn to the characters if i remember correctly <laughs> yeah and you know speaking of horror i it's there's like you said you didn't get scared from watching this films and there is hardly anything uh, both in the first one and the second one that i think would remind you of a quote-unquote stereotypical horror film. I mean, there's very little elements here and there, but for the most part, they both kind of unfold like, you know, dramas and very well-made dramas for that uh, matter. But uh, when I first put them on, the first one and the second one, I expected something akin to J-horror. That was my expectation. And it was, I was, you know, ple- pleasantly surprised to see that it was nothing like it. The first one is, like you mentioned it, is I'd say maybe more in line with traditional Chinese and Japanese ghost stories. Uh, like it reminded me of Kwai um, uh, Dan a little bit. I'm not sure if yeah. you've seen that film or Onibaba. It's been, it's been a while since I've seen both of them, but sort of from my memories, it kind of, it reminded me of those of, you know, not, not the jump scary style of, or, you know, body horror, or whatever, of, or anything that, modern j-horror brings to the scene but more on that sort of slow moving uh scary ideas as opposed to scary imagery in um uh portrayed in the film for the first one but the second one was even i think less scary it was mostly they had a few scenes that like the hands that go over the girl's head hair and all that but otherwise it was mostly a drum and there's that big face at the end which is more like a science fiction image out of science fiction than an image out of horror, but I guess it could be interpreted either way. Yeah, the first one opens with like um, Mrs. Park getting killed, and that's like the opening scare. A very, a very normal horror movie start, yeah. 
Yeah, and it's a very um, simple and effective use of like jump cuts and um, physical um, uh, props. Uh, and then you go for about an hour before anything uh, really supernatural happens. And uh, again, and um, uh, spoiler alert, Mr. O, who's a really nasty teacher, I guess his comeuppance. And the second one, Memento Mori, you go like, I think, over an hour before anything supernatural happens although there's telepathy um hinted at earlier in the film and uh act, the scares in this um well the horror elements in the second one really well done like the the hands coming out of nowhere and um like uh that's a sort of traditional imagery in a lot of horror movies you see that in um uh Ju-on, the grudge for example yeah which um, was released the year before yeah this is these are coming out around the same time as ringu and Ju on yeah. and like the J horror boom. And, so especially um, for the first one, there was not, there might have been some J horror influences, but it was certainly not as big as it was a few years after. Yeah, I, I think I've read that uh, the producer of the franchise, um, because this was at a time when um, there was a liberalization of the market and um, foreign films uh, quotas were increased, so people were able to see more foreign films and. Um, the producer saw a Japanese horror movie called Gakko no Kaidan, which is um, school ghost stories. And um, yeah, uh, this could be like um, taken from school ghost stories, like similar imagery, um, definitely the same setting. Have you seen that film? I've seen parts of it. I haven't seen it in its entirety. Um, back in the early 2000s, like um, fishing around on YouTube for clips of horror movies, um, I think I you know, managed to watch a couple of those uh segments but yeah um like a lot of asian countries share similar horror imagery like um like baleful woman with long hair who's like uh who has been wronged and like physically or mentally hurt badly and dies and like her presence haunts a particular area and um she wants her revenge that's quite common across asia i think for for the first one yes i think the second one I think it's it's a lot, and that's what I liked about the Memento Mori. I think it's a bit more nuanced as to whether or not, um, uh, what's her name, Hyoshin, uh, the one who's who really, dies. Uh, yeah, Hyoshin. I don't know. Yeah, I don't remember. But uh, the, the, yeah, I never remember names. But the one who essentially commits suicide. Spoiler alert. Uh, I I think we can have a debate whether or not she's been truly wronged, and whether or not. Uh, you know the the moral ambiguities there as to with a second film, but the first one I think it's a little less ambiguous. The student, the the girl, has been wronged, uh, and we find out there's the twist, sort of a twist. They don't make a big deal of it that her death was accidental; it was not a suicide. It's a rather absurd death as well. Yes, but you know the the reveal and the, also the the resolution at the end is very much sort of a fairy tale that she just wants a friend. She just wants yeah. to essentially be a child, uh, to, 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 to sort of live a childhood that was, you know, unfairly denied to her. She doesn't, she doesn't really seek revenge. She, she kills people out of almost a childish revenge. Whoever bullies her friends ends up dying, or I guess whoever is too close to discovering her secret. That's, that's really, the deaths are very almost anticlimactic when you find out the reason for them. And that's a really powerful emotional beat. I think so, yeah. Yeah. There is 
So you did mention in the beginning that the first one has a sort of strong political background, uh, whereas the second one is a more personal story, a more sort of uh, a more emotional drama. And now I would agree. In fact, the first one reminded me a lot of um, a movie that we also did here at uh, uh, in Heroic Purgatory this season, and that was uh, The Quiet Family. Hmm. Which was not 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 that they have anything together plot common in common plot wise, but they're both sort of like have this allegorical undertone that they're both stories about something bad, uh, and the quiet family can also be considered horror has horror elements to some degree, and the, but they all represent something political. However, the difference is, and I don't know if you sort of if you have a better idea for this, but whereas in the quiet family we could sort of pinpoint, okay. This is what these actions represent. This is why we have these deaths. This is we can maybe tie each of these elements to the, you know, the previous dictatorship in South Korea. I'm not sure that it is as clear to me in the whispering corridors. Like there is something there about sort of the social pressure of uh, of the kids that are there. There is something there about gender disparity. Like we have we have uh, a, a girl's school and we have only two female pr- professors and one of them dies. And the other one was a former student that is kind of traumatized. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, first off, you have to start with the protagonist, um, Nim Jio, uh, the artist and psychic. Like uh, From the moment we meet her, she's representative of the new generation. She's listening to rock music on a Walkman. She's got uh, dyed hair and she's defiant when it comes to um, uh, following the commands of her teachers. Um, she's going her own way. And um, then you've got the uh, younger teachers. Uh, they're the generation that would have... like. Um, I tried to formulate this idea on the fly. You've got the older teachers who are like, they would have grown up with the dictatorship. They've been imbued with uh, certain ways of behavior. So um, you see them uh, 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 be vicious towards the students. They're very violent. In the case of Mr. Oh, um, there's a lot of mind games from Mrs. Park. Uh, she uses competition uh, to separate them and to bully uh, various students. Um, and then you've got the younger generation of teachers, uh, represented by Hu Yun Yong, who's like, um, like breaking away from that pattern of behavior. And, uh, throughout the film, you see the teachers, uh, punishing the students, like group punishments where they all have to like, um, hold up their hands while they're kneeling on their desks or they're being slapped around. It's like something from the military. Yeah. Well, that's true. And I saw that as the old teachers bringing the ways bringing the old ways into the new system in the sense that the new system is not so different from the old ways it's more liberal in a certain sense but it's also it's it's kind of in some way it's also bringing the worst in people just like the old system did like the competitiveness especially uh, like you know, when the when Mister O, I think, is the one that takes over the class after the teacher dies. Yeah, his nickname is Mad Dog. Mad Dog, but he also says you will work hard, and you will not have a social life. You will be each other's enemy, because yeah. that's really the sort of the the new the new capitalism or the new system that you know fosters competition. You know, that's sort of as he views it. That's what he takes to succeed, and then we have. 
in a in a sort of a mirroring of that. I think the girl that he abuses. Yeah, it's it's heavily suggested because he's practically groping her. And one one thing that I did not that I had a problem with this film compared to the second film is that all the girls have have the same haircuts and the same uniform. So at times I had a had a hard time telling them apart. Uh, except when it was for context. But I think it's the same girl that has that chance meeting with a teacher in the library. Yes. And they have that conversation about her being smart. And she says, I'm going to Seoul University. And when the teacher asks what for, she says, doesn't matter. That's uh, that's the best university. Who cares what I study? That just, that's going to open all the doors for me. And I think that's sort of like that same spiritness of, you know, of uh, fo- a false meritocracy that I, th- I think maybe perhaps the film is suggesting that is what's happening in modern Korea. Yeah, there's a repetition of um, like the teacher went through uh, a rivalry with the uh, with the girl who turns into a ghost, and there's a repetition of it happening again with this girl who's planning on going to Seoul University and her former best friends. They're rivals in the class, and they're jockeying for position. Um, and uh, yeah, like Mr. Oh has all these slogans um, uh, printed on uh, like scrolls on the class, like keep your own place. And uh, he's constantly reminding the students you're each other's rivals um, and you have to remodel yourselves. And uh, yeah, it's it's kind of like uh, this sort of like uh, politicking of the old way of the sort of uh, fascist uh, dictatorship uh, has not died off yet. These teachers are representative of it. Well, yeah, because it's the same, like the same people who were in charge during the dictatorship mostly end up being in charge after the dictatorship. Before the, the system changed and, you know, the top few guys were either assassinated or put to jail or whatever, but... But middle management is still in place. It's still, it's still exactly the same, and they're just slightly changing the ways. And of course, the teachers were, except for the new teacher, in Mrs. Park is implied that she was there. She was the teacher in 89 when uh, these were students, which is very shortly after the liberalization of Korea in 80, late 87, 88, I think, when the first Democratic president was elected. So yeah. it's it, Mrs. Park was a transitional teacher, and every other most almost every other male teacher were there during the old system, and they sort of remain teachers in the new system. Of course, it is a school, but that's where the allegory comes in. Yeah, you, there's a there's actually a discussion between the art teacher and um, Hu Yunyong, where um, they both talk about being uh, feeling uncomfortable in the system in the school itself. And you can see that they're more humane towards the students. And it doesn't fit in with the sort of tough regimen that's demanded by the other teachers. Yeah. And the, also the, you know, when uh, there was a comment, which might, could be, this is, could be a translation thing, but when she's looking uh, for her old friend and he's trying to look her family, the teacher, one of the male teachers kind of berates him and says, mm. well, you're not really friends then because uh, female friendships are... I don't know. He he makes some comment there. I forget exactly the words that he used, but he makes a berating comment about female friendships. Uh, and then we have that gym teacher, I think he is, who keeps always like bringing her coffee and trying to be nice to her. Uh, mm. Something like that. Uh, what else? And there was uh, another, another that again, this is one more thing that I'm, I'm, I'm sure it means something. I'm not exactly sure what it means, but the film opens with the Korean flag with the shots of the school and there is a shot of the Korean flag sort of hanging outside and then we go immediately inside to to Mrs. Park who is circling numbers 
and those are years where we later find out that she's counting the all the years that the girl, the same girl, has appeared as a junior and a senior in the school. And the first number, of course, is like I mentioned, eighty nine. Yeah, I, I suppose what you, what you can read about that is this is going to be a criticism of the system of the country itself. And yeah, um, exactly, yeah, yeah. Like uh, various like school associations tried to get the film banned in Korea at the time of its release because of its depiction of like um, violent classrooms. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, there, there's so, so much, so much symbolism in this film. Uh, like, uh, again, like it's, I, I love, like you mentioned, I love the fact that it's, and the second film does this sort of to a certain extent with the pregnancy, but it's never, we never see Mr. O abusing that student. He just like gently touches his ear. And then when he dies, his ear is cut off. Yeah. It's like watching it has, uh, as a modern audience member, it's kind of like there's no reason for any of that touching. This guy is uh, a threat. But um, He Yun Yung uh, talks to the student and um, she says he's a pervert. Yeah. There is, um, uh, what is, there's a, another thing that kind of per- perplexed me a little bit was why there was so many... Uh, there was a lot of Western or Greek statues type of imagery. A lot of the 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 sculptures that the students were working on were sort of looked like what you expect to be ancient Greek statues, and a lot of the art was sort of resembled Western art. I was wondering, you know, there was two two students prominently protagonists, so the main girl of the story, and then the old teacher who, when she was young, they were both into painting, but both of them were painting Western style art. I was wondering why they were not into, you know, maybe more traditional Korean art. I think it's just a sign of like um, school systems in uh, Asia. Certainly in Japan, there's like an emphasis on Western art. And I think that's probably what Korea was modeled after, you know, ever since the World War II was shaped by the West, whether it was the dictatorship was indirectly sort of protected by Western interest or the liberalization, which was a model to model after a Western capitalism, or I'm not, I, I did not get quite what the Joyce book was, but that's what the girl picks up and the teacher says, you should read Joyce. Yeah, uh, I wasn't quite uh, sure of that reference. Either. Yeah, I, I, maybe they just did it to, to sound smart. But they, again, there's so much interesting imagery and interesting reference in the film that sort of make you, make you think and make you sort of wonder what it exactly is the film that's trying to tell you, what it is, what it's trying to say about maybe the education system or maybe the country as, as uh, general, that I really why i liked this film uh a lot uh m- much like i like the quiet family because it has you know he's trying to sort of to to tell a story in two levels one sort of the direct horror story that it is but also a a, a different story hiding underneath the background or in the background yeah there's also some really the first time that i watched it i felt the first one I felt it was a bit maybe sloppily directed, and I still think that about the acting. I think the acting was a bit awkward at times. There was, uh, I don't know, a, a few off moments between the characters. But on a second rewatch, I really appreciated the imagery and the editing of the film. I think it, it is a lot more sophisticated that, uh, uh, than what I first my first watching of this film. I watched it twice. Uh, the second watch, I, I think I appreciated the editing a lot more. There's a lot of interesting editing, a lot of non-conventional editing where sort of it it cuts to there were a lot of moments where we see a character looking somewhere 
and then the, the the film cuts to a completely different location that could not be possibly where that character is looking at, but it just that editing creates that effect, that connection between the two. And there was uh, a lot of that. And that reminded me a lot, Nicholas Rogue, uh, the, the person who directed uh, Walkabout and The Man Who Fell to Earth. Yeah, Don't Look Now. Don't Look Now. I haven't seen that one. Uh, but he he also was a very did did a lot of those editing tricks to sort of uh, to sort of create interesting connection between different objects and there was there was some of that in this film but there was also that effect with the towards the end towards the climax where the girl cuts in front of uh, I don't know if you remember the particular scene that I'm talking about uh, the the ghost is approaching the teacher but it's done with that jump with a series of rapid rapid jump cuts. Hmm. Does she have the um uh the uh art um thingamabob about to stab the teacher? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm pretty sure I've seen that effect somewhere, but I just can't remember where and can I remember if it was before this or after this. Yeah. It didn't it doesn't you don't realize it at first, but I thought it was a very interesting tech done technically interesting the a film that was done uh, that had interesting technical aspects about it. Yeah. I, th- um, I think one of the peculiarities of this uh, franchise is that the producer tried to get first-time feature film directors for each of the entries. Yeah, yeah. I noticed that. both For both films, there were first... The second one was directed by a pair of, of people, but there were also first-time directors. Yeah. Um, and so uh, they, uh, like the directors have worked on shorts before, but this is like the first feature film. One thing that I wasn't exactly sure about this film is the girl that hungs herself towards the end mm. i'm not a hundred percent clear why she hungs herself i i guess it's like throughout the film you see that she's lost her position as like the brainiest kid in the class um her relationship with her best friend has, de- has deteriorated to the point that there's just no salvaging it as far as she's concerned and the pressure is too much so uh she commits suicide yeah, I mean that that sort of that I saw that, but I was also wondering if it had anything to do. And this is where my confusion with mixing up a couple of the characters was: she also the girl that we see in one scene getting picked up by her stepmother? No, she she's the girl that observes uh, the girl who is in the library who picks up the James Joyce book, like the new number one. She's the one that gets picked up by. Okay the stepmother and then the girl that hangs herself makes this really bitchy comment about oh i heard your mother's in an insane asylum yeah okay so i was wondering yeah they didn't i mean i i understand it seemed to me a bit um high schooly the reasons why and i i don't like that and that that's sort of where my problem comes with the second film where my issues come i I I guess maybe it's my age maybe I'm too far removed from high school emotions but I find it a bit silly when when high school kids are portrayed in media killing themselves for what I perceive to be very, very stupid high school reasons. And if you ever talk to a high school, they're not that deep or clever. They're mostly <laughs> dumb kids full of hormones. And This is why the second film's so good, because it really, like, teenagers are set to melodrama on every issue. Uh, like, as like from my view as a cynical adult and um the second one captures that really well but you also got to remember that like these are pressure cooker situations where the students are studying from like eight in the morning until like 10 12 at night uh i understand it it is a real thing that happens in in a lot of asian countries 
Yeah. Uh, it, not as frequent as it used to be, but it is something that happens. I, I, I guess I wasn't, uh, I don't know much about Korea, but I know in Japan and China it is. Yeah. It is a, a certainly, thing. Like Korea was making headlines a couple of years ago um, because students were committing suicide. Like the pressure to succeed was too much. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. And one thing, this is more of a personal note, but whenever I watch high school, uh, Western or American high school films, I have a hard time identifying it because my high school experience is nothing like it. Nothing like what an American high school experience, but, you know, sans the suicide and sans the old girl school, uh, the school portrayed in this film is not that dissimilar from my high school experience. We had teachers who were, you know, uh, calling us names and would hit the students that misbehaved or that made noise. We had, you know, we had group punishments where everybody had to like stay in late or, or you know, we didn't usually, we weren't usually put to on top of our desks and hold our hands high, but we were made to do stuff. We were made to clean the gym if we did something bad. So that was, I don't know, I felt, it felt very realistic. I'm not sure how realistic it is in Korea, but it is, the emotional resonance was certainly there for me. Yeah, it's like, like the sense of being repressed and uh, <laughs> under yeah. constant assault and um, duress. Well, yeah, whereas the second one, Memento Mori, felt perhaps a little bit more of a modern Western high, high school experience than the first one. It's certainly the school in the Memento Mori is a, a lot more liberal than the school in Whispering Corridors. Yeah, I, I definitely did wonder if the school in Whispering Corridors, like all of the stuff that happens there, if it was just over-accentuated to make that sort of criticism of the uh, dictatorships of the past. I, th I think so. I think the allegory has to sort of work on a perhaps more, certain things have to be made a little bit more black and white to sort of make the point, but it could also be maybe it was more in the country, more isolated, whereas, you know, the school in Memento Mori is like right in the middle of a city or something. Yeah. Like in Memento Mori, we don't get the sense that the girls live there in the schools and the Whispering Corridors, I think they live there. I. It's definitely there's definitely like a home time scene, but it's late at night, which reflects the fact that like kids in Korea are just slaving away in classrooms from morning yeah. to night. But I, I guess we can sort of transition into talking about the second film, and this is compared to the first one, this is a lot more stylized and a lot more, um, uh, I think, technically well done a film. Yeah. Has a the soundtrack is the first one has an interesting soundtrack, but the second one the soundtrack definitely stands out, and it was sort of one of my favorite aspects of the film for the second film, Memento Mori. I, I find the at rewatching re it, I was less tolerant <laughs> of the um, action going on in the school, like um, my ability to withstand uh, melodrama and uh, has just uh, declined over the years, which is probably yeah. why I'm not watching Sean Sonu movies so much. The second one definitely, I think the first one is, was surprisingly lacking in melodrama for a Korean film, but the second one is definitely feels more like a Korean film of what you'd expect of a modern Korean film with a touch of melodrama in any genre. Mm. But I, I still liked the, uh, I, I did still like sort of, I, I felt it was, you know, within the limits that I can tolerate, uh, speaking for myself. But it did feel like I did really like the feel of the high school, like the girls, especially with how it starts with the girls and, and the video camera and trying goofing around in school. And, you know, as soon as the teacher comes saying, hey, hey, like the teacher is here, get get to your seats and everybody get into their seats and whatnot. 
Yeah, and, and there's a moment where that same teacher's like, give me the video camera, and he's, he's trying to figure out how to work it. Can't, can't figure it out, yeah, exactly, yeah, that, that, was, the, that was brilliant. And the kids are just mocking him. Yeah, and it's, I think, overall, the film is also, that does something impressive that it has a non-linear story, which I think, um, you know, not, not, I mean, it's rare in general, but also it was particularly rare in, I think, North Korea. There was another, in North Korea, in South Korea. There was another film released in the same year called Peppermint Candy by Lee Chang Dong. And that one is not nonlinear, but that is like Memento, it goes backwards. Mm. Whereas this one is truly nonlinear and it kind of like, it does it really well and feels very almost postmodern in the way that it does it. But despite that, it's also a very well-paced film. That was sort of one of my problems where with the first one where it was sort of a, had some technical flows. Sometimes it feels the transition it felt the transition between scenes were too abrupt. Like I feel like like there's no true end to a scene. It just kind of stops and jumps to the next one. Whereas this one felt brilliantly paced from what it just flows so well from beginning to end. It feels like one long epic poem that starts with that sort of brilliant scene, that very metaphorical stylized scene with them jumping into the pool and just kind of continues to flow up until the very ending climactic scene so it's i it's 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 really i that was what i found it so so impressive about this it's just so from a first time director it was so well structured so well paced that i was impressed yeah the way it, like this takes place over the course of a day but because you're seeing um like uh, this relationship fall apart from so many different perspectives it feels like way stretched out like, like the dimensions that opened up tremendously and um piecing together everything is just really engaging yeah and you you get this is also a film that you get i think this holds true for the first one to an extent but i think it's even truer for memento mori you definitely gain more by watching this film a second time hmm because you sort of you kind of you don't have to focus so much on trying to following the different threads as the film moves back and forth in time. You already know the general gist of it, so you can appreciate the details and the style of the film a little better. Mm. Yeah, yeah, you can just luxuriate in the, the 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 camera angles and the way they pick out the actors and how they're reacting to each other, and like um, so it it's really impactful when uh the two lovers like hold hands in front of the class and you're seeing everybody stare at them yeah there was one thing though about it that uh, i was uh, i'm wondering if you if the thought ever occurred to you but do you think there is a valid interpretation of this film where nothing that happens in the second half it's real is just the what's the what's the girl's name that finds the diary uh the girl's name who finds the diary uh, Min Ah. Min Ah. I mean, she starts taking pills left and right after finding uh, yeah. that diary. She even inhales <laughs> that powder. So do it's... you think it's a valid interpretation that is just something in that mix caused her to hallucinate the whole thing? All in her imagination. As soon as she started, as soon as she took that pill, I was just like, what are you doing? You don't know what it is. Yeah. She just like <laughs> powder licks it, you know, a little candy thing, like looks like acid, to be honest. Yeah, she's, she's reading messages in the diary like, hey, this is poison. I'll make the cure some other time. Yeah, and then <laughs> under the piano, she just finds something. She just takes it. Uh, and <laughs> I it guess I might as well take this. <laughs> yeah, so 
I don't know. I felt like that could be an, a very valid interpretation of the film, that everything is just like one big fever dream that she's having after the whole mix of things that she did. Because, yeah, it does happen all in one day. I mean, it, the film doesn't feel like it because it just stretches time through its nonlinear storytelling. But, you know, considering it takes takes place in not even a full day, just a school day, I think. Uh, and uh, it's, you know, considering the short amount of time that it takes place, it could be that she's just hallucinating for the second half of the day after she took those pills. That would have been a brilliant twist at the end. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's definitely, it, it's it's a possibility, um, but and then that would make all the horror elements really <laughs> meaningless. Of course, yeah. But I mean, I don't know. I do like that being a possibility because it is, I think the story is not about the ghost coming back to life. It is about sort of the emotional narrative between the two girls, the the two lesbian lovers, which sort of the build and fall of their relationship. So, you know, the guilt that the athlete one feels after her lover's death is more important than whether or not her lover is truly a ghost or not, I think. Yeah, it, it's kind of like the filmmakers have made this drama and they're like, oh, wait, we're, in a, we're a horror franchise. We've got to uh, put some ghosts in. And then the final like 20 minutes is just chaos. Do you think that, you know, aside from the suicide, do you think that their relationship was healthy ever? Um, I've, uh, maybe at the beginning, uh, but you get the sense that um, Hyo Shin, um, the nerdy one, she's so ostracized and bullied by the others that she uh, becomes dependent upon Shi Yun, the athlete. Uh, uh, for codependency, um, yeah, that's what I felt too. There was, it, it, was uh, it, it reminded me of like Happy Together to a certain uh, extent, yeah, yes, yes, because you've got this uh, one person in in a homosexual relationship who's dependent upon the other and they're, they're happy to be out in public about it, and then you've got this the other person who's much more um, it, it, it's internalized and they're uncertain of themselves, yeah, and that's true, and and you know, of course. The first instinct is to say that the athlete is is the one that sort of kind of draws away from from the relationship first, who's kind of like rejects her. And of course, the first instinct is to say, well, she was she didn't want to be out with a homosexual relationship because of you know the culture that she lives, and that's a reasonable assumption. But then on the on the second watch, I thought, okay, maybe she's just feels too constricted in general, not because she's in a homosexual relationship, it's just because of how needy her girlfriend is. Uh, I think that's also perhaps a valid interpretation of the of why the two end up the way they are. They end up. Yeah, this is a teen romance and obviously uh, like uh, emotions are heightened. Um uh but it goes to the point where Hyo Shin is like oh, well, let's just die together. <laughs> yeah. And that's and that's where I think my issues with the film is, you know, whenever teenagers say, oh, I got dumped, I have to kill myself. That just kind of, uh, it's I, I, it's not a plot line that I enjoy very much because it's just so melodramatic and it's so even beyond, you know, what you expect of uh, sort of heightened teenage drama. Yeah. And that's, I think that's kind of why, why this is, I don't appreciate this film as much as the, 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 uh, the first film. But I also had a few things that I, I guess kind of maybe I didn't understand as well. Like, uh, although not didn't understand, but I found kind of superfluous, like the whole tele- telepathy angle. Did you feel that that was strictly necessary for the the film? Like, it feel like it's mentioned a couple of times, and then it's just kind of 
let go for it doesn't it doesn't seem to affect the any part any major part of the story at all it's established that Hyoshin and Xu Yun are, are able to communicate telepathically and then Mina later gains that ability and it's dotted throughout the narrative and um I I took it uh, as allowing us into that sort of headspace. I, I think you could have cut it from the film and the acting was strong enough that you could like understand what's going on. Exactly. But I wish it did, but it didn't like they like there's I think the total time runtime where telepathy is used or mentioned is counted in seconds. Like they don't the one part where I think it they do use it is when she's doing that hearing test. Yeah. With a tuning fork. Yeah. But she kind of cheats she kind of raises her hand and the telepathy is just an extra on top of that where she tells her the left one or the left one yeah so it's i i, I wish it had i wish we did uh, you they did use the telepathy to get more in their headspace a little bit but it doesn't they just very brief like the one the one thing is they literally say oh we still have this telepathy thing i can't believe it's still working like that's that's the entire dialogue that they use then whenever they're every other instance they talk with words i yeah I, like uh, scenes were cut from this um, in order to get a lower age rating so yeah. perhaps something was lost with those scenes I do wonder yeah, I do wonder if they include telepathy just because maybe it was popular at the time late 90s science fiction and all that or maybe there was something more to it and it was cut from the film so that did occur to me yeah like uh, they remembered uh, we're making a horror film this, this yeah. be supernaturally it did. It did. It did leave a, a a sort of a sour taste in my mouth that it felt you know might as well have cut it completely. It didn't. I don't think it needed the, the film. I think I would have appreciated if if it was used more and it was used at least. There was one scene where the telepathy had a, played sort of a crucial role to sort of something in the overall plot. But as it was used, I probably would have preferred if it was completely cut. Yeah. Um, but th- there was uh, again uh, these little things that kind of bothered me about this film. The other one is why does. Uh, Hyoshin sleep with her teacher. I don't think we get a, quite a very satisfying explanation, except that he was lonely that night. It's like uh, implied that uh, she's happy breaking boundaries. Like she recites that uh, poem where she's like, uh, like d- dismantles all sorts of binary oppositions, and the relationship she has with Shu Yun it like breaks all sorts of traditional binary oppositions in Korean society. And uh, you get the sense that maybe she's a free spirit or she thinks she's more mature than she actually is. And then like she commits suicide. It shows that she's just an immature teenager. And of course, there's, it's also heavily implied that that relationship, one or more sexual encounters that she may have had with her teacher, uh, which is a you know whole uh, different can of soup that we can open about uh, sort of the implications of that action in a yeah. school system. But it is implied that she's pregnant yeah uh, and of course it, it's there's no we don't get any evidence of that ever it's just a hint, just hints and possible symptoms that may indicate to that but that could also be a reason for her that i think kind of saves it for me a little bit because that seems like a valid dramatic reasons for a teen to commit suicide yeah and again it could be one of those scenes that were cut Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I wish. I wish that they released a director's cut of this movie, or at least a DVD with the, perhaps there is, and I'm not aware of it, but a DVD with uh, deleted scenes and whatnot. 
I, yeah, I did a quick search for um, the Whispering Corridor series because I've got the cut Tartan edition and um, can't find any uh, more recent Western uh, releases. So it's uh, a series that's primed for uh, a re-release at some point. Yeah, I think so. Hopefully they can find some interesting uh, extras for this. Well, they've got the, the sixth entry in the series was released this year. So are there how many, how many titles are in total? Uh, there are six. So um, the first one is Whispering Corridors. The second one's Memento Mori. <coughs> Excuse me. The third one's Wishing Stairs. The fourth one is Voice. The fifth one's A Blood Pledge. And the sixth one is The Humming. And uh, that was released uh, a couple of months ago. Interesting. And it features a teacher returning back to an old school. Okay. And I think all of them are sort of related by theme, but not by plot or characters. No, they're totally unconnected story-wise. Yeah, I see, I see. Yeah, but I, 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 you know, I, I think I would probably am inclined to believe your earlier assessment that they, there is diminishing returns because that's just generally what happens to these series. And I, I am also not surprised that they're probably clang to the horror angle a lot more than these first two films, which like we kind of discussed in the beginning, maybe might not even be qualified as horror films or very, very, very superficially qualify as horror films. They have horror elements yeah. and horror-like scenes, but, but you know, I mean, the supernatu- having supernatural elements, in my opinion, is not strictly a horror. It could be a more fantasy thing or more, um, I guess, gothic horror could, be, could sort of be applied to these films. Well, you could take all the horror elements out and these would still stand as strong dramas, so. Yeah. Yeah, the last sequence, sort of like the last twenty-minute sequence of Memento Mori, is just brilliant. With the whole, her whole, like essentially Mina's life, the girl who finds the diary, her just caught up. Like life goes to downward, uh, probably after she took that last pill that she took. <laughs> and then you know we see the athlete uh, Shino Shion, where she's like finally coming to grips with the, her loss and is crying over the diary who finally gets sort of the last, you know, the last missing pieces of the, of that flashback puzzle that we see exactly what happened. We see their kiss, we see their rejection and before the suicide and we see the, you know, the final moment before she was turned to suicide. I think that whole sequence is just brilliant. It's, it's a brilliant sort of exercise in montage and editing. And then you get that credit sequence where the two lovers are dancing on the roof. Yeah. Which is such a, you know, n- non-horror ending, I think. Mm. It's at least, you know, my, in my, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't make statements like that because my experience in horror is very limited. But in my limited experience, it's, horror movies don't usually end like that. Uh, I'm trying to think of examples. I, I, there, there probably are. I'm sure examples. there are. I'm yeah. sure there are. It's just general, like you know, stereotypically when you think of horror films, they don't kind of have that sort of bittersweet melodramatic ending. Yeah, it's usually like a hand bursts out from a grave or from the water. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like the first one. The first one has more of a a horror ending, where we get the continue, which I think is also perhaps i think a, a great ending to the allegory which sort of like promises this continuation of the cycle but it is also a very good horror ending where oh there's another ghost in the school yeah it's like this is still gonna happen because the, the system hasn't changed all that much exactly exactly but yeah uh, the ending to memento mori is extremely beautiful and um i loved a lot of the horror sequences um 
during the uh, final 20 minutes uh, and like the huge crowd scenes as well. It's just tremendously, it's like a, a burst of energy after all these pent up emotions. Yeah. There is something that I, it did not occur to me just watching the film, but I, I read in your review where you talk about the symbolism of the opening scene. Oh, the red string of fate. The red string. And then that's sort of, that's also from Greek mythology. Is that oh, right? Okay. Or is that, is, I don't, I don't know. I'm asking. I'm not, I'm not making a statement. So it's uh, East Asian mythology. I, I've seen it quite a few times in Japanese films. Okay, interesting. So would you like to so talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so the red string of fate basically is like um, two people who are fated lovers are going to be connected and the uh, red string of fate is a visual sort of uh, metaphor for it. And the opening scene is them falling into a pool with the red string of fate, which is a red shirt, I think, or something, a red scarf. It's like tying their ankles together yes. and sinking deeper and deeper into this body of water. Yeah, but Xion eventually is trying to escape from that, which is a, like a very concise visual summary of the entire their entire relationship, pretty much. Yeah, and I think the you could, I guess, in a simple ways, you can interpret their plunge into a into a, the water, drowning as a sort of their plunge into homosexuality, where uh, where it's you know culturally in culturally untested waters, so to speak, for the time in, in Korean history. Yeah, to be together is to face all that tremendous pressure and to be stifled. Did you think that the first movie had some hints? Or is it just friendship that I'm maybe look, misinterpreting too much? But did you think the first film had maybe some, some hints of homosexuality or lesbianism? I felt it was friendship, very strong friendship. But, it, you know, I, I subsequent rewatch, or well, more rewatches might uh, open that up. Yeah, I think, I think I don't, I think it might be just me trying to force that interpretation into it. I, after watching the second one, uh, like rewatching the first one with the, with the second one fresh in my mind, I think it's perhaps it is me that I brought that. But I think maybe if you really look into it, maybe you can kind of see that because, you know, I guess it's it is inevitable if in a story set in an all girls school, but perhaps it is just friendship, yeah, a very strong friendship. Well, one of the directors of um, Memento Mori, Min Kyu Dong, he um, dabbles in LGBTQ um, stories uh, in, in terms of uh, feature films that he's made, including Antique, which is based on the manga Antique Bakery. Okay, interesting. And, um, I. I think it features some of the characters or some of the actors from uh, Memento Mori. Interesting. I'll have to. Is that a recent film? Oh, it's from two thousand eight. Oh, two. Okay. All right. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Um, I read the Antique Bakery manga actually. Like, it was at a time when any manga that was in the library, I would just pick up and read. And um, yeah, it's mildly enjoyable. Uh, all right. So, is there anything else uh, about this film that uh, you feel we haven't uh, touched upon or haven't discussed? I, yeah, I think it's a, a, a good introduction. Like, even though we've talked about the plot, people who not watch this can watch the film and like have a, a really rich experience. Uh, it's I definitely like rewatching Memento Mori and Whispering Corridors. I think I place them as equal because my tolerance for melodrama has diminished. Um, yeah, they're both strong films and um, great introduction to Asian horror, especially K-horror. Yeah. And of course, we mentioned both films have 
uh, more of the first film have twists of sorts, but I would say none of those are as important to the plot as the characters and the style and sort of maybe the allegory that each film contains. So I don't think spoilers ruin these films in any way. Yeah. Right, and the second one especially has just some superlative direction. So exactly, yeah, the second one especially, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's interesting looking at like the box office charts. Um, Memento Mori in nineteen ninety eight, uh, Whispering Corridors was like the second best selling Korean film. Uh six hundred twenty one thousand. Uh, over six hundred twenty one thousand people watched it. Um, and also that year was The Quiet Family. Um. Three, four, five, six. Uh, yeah, at number six. Um, and then Memento Mori did, didn't even place on the charts <laughs> the next year. Yeah, I think it was the sort of the, the the subject matter of homosexuality probably hurt its chances for Korea at the time. Yeah, I think it has a very limited release. Yeah. But uh, Whispering Corridors did better than Saving Private Ryan and Alien 4, but Alien 4 was wasn't a very good film anyway. <laughs> Alien Resurrection. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you've seen more Korean horror films than I have. I, I, I'm speculating that you have. How, what, what's your general uh, uh, view of Korean horror? And would you say it differs significantly for J, from J-horror? Would you say that Whispering Corridors and Memento Mori are good representatives of K-horror? Are they, or is K, did K-horror go in a different direction uh, in, in the following years? I don't know if you have any, any sort of comments on that, on that regard. I think, uh, yeah, we have to remember that like, at this time, like prior to the 1990s when you had liberalization and relaxation, uh, a liberalization and a relaxation of censorship, horror movies weren't that huge. Um, you did have like traditional ghost stories. Uh, yeah. I'm going to pronounce something and it's going to sound really bad <laughs> in Korean. Let me see if I can get it up. Yeah, like uh, Kue Dam. Uh, and they were being made in the 60s and 70s, but you also had like a lot of psychological uh, horror movies like The Housemaid, um, 1960. Uh, you had monster movies. That's like, a really good movie. Yeah, it's uh, remade as well. I haven't seen the remake, but the original Housemaid is fantastic i was it was blown away when i first watched it i couldn't believe that this was made in korea in 1960 but anyway yeah. please go on and um yeah you had like monster movies like yongari monster from the deep sort of like kaiju ega the equivalent but um most korean films like throughout history have been either propaganda pieces for like the japanese empire or anti-communist propaganda and um there's been all sorts of like uh, state repression on filmmakers. And then in the 90s, when everything relaxed, people started experimenting with horror movies. So if Whispering Corridors feels like really slow, uh, feels like, like really boring, you have to remember that like the like Korean filmmakers were still finding their feet. Uh, and again, you know, like to go back to The Quiet Family, nobody uh, could fathom a horror comedy which is why uh, Kim Ji-woon had to direct it himself. Uh, like Japanese horror movies, like because they Japan's got a rich history with, the, with uh, like supernatural uh, tales, folklore, and so forth. And because of uh, like openness to foreign influences, there's just so many different styles and stories out there. Um, like Korean movies, uh, like slow to catch up. I feel 
um, like some interesting stories, but nothing really scary until like the last couple of years where you've got um, Train to Busan and uh, The Wailing. Uh, the Wailing is abs- an absolutely astonishing horror movie. Uh, it's, I watched it on Amazon Prime like uh, five months ago, and it's one of the best I've seen. Um, if you have the chance, I suggest you uh, rec- oh, we, uh, watch we talk- it. I've seen it. Yeah, we talked about it. It's yeah. by, by the person, I forget his name, but it's the same director who did uh, uh, the, the Chaser and The Yellow Sea. The Chaser is an absolutely nasty movie. <laughs> Yeah, it was one. It's I, I like that movie and the the Yellow Sea. I wasn't so impressed, but the Chaser is fantastic, and I think I'm fairly certain that it is the same director. Oh, and um, uh, yeah. Speaking of Kim Ji Woo, um, A Tale of Two Sisters. Yes. So yeah, um, again, it's like a really gripping story, great atmosphere, like characters you totally get involved with. So yeah, it's hard for me to gauge. Like my general um feeling is like it. Korean horror movies haven't been scary up until recently. Um, they they but they always feature really great characters, um, settings, and atmosphere, and they're really well made. Yeah, I, I would. My limited experience with Korean films, for Korean horror, is also that they are still n- perhaps not quite. Perhaps like Japanese horror, you can't. It's still not. Uh, it can't be pinned down to a single style, whereas. You know, cause, but in Korea, it's maybe mostly because the artists haven't found their footing yet, or they've only recently found their footing, whereas in Japan is more because there's so many divergent styles that exist. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think it's interesting. I, th- I think not necessarily as eager to explore Korean horror uh, past this point, but I, I would like to see the Korean Ringu. Oh, yeah, that was 1999 because- Ring Virus. But yeah, that's right. Yeah, because I've been told it's an interesting take on it's, the it's, on the story, um, but I don't know. Yeah, it's supposed to be really faithful to the book. I have I had the Tartan Ring box set, which is like the first two and Ring Virus, and I lent it to my Japanese teacher, and she kept reminding me, and I kept forgetting, and um, I think she still got it a decade later. Oh no! Well, yeah, it's probably gone now. <laughs> Maybe you can uh, get in touch and uh, and get it back if she's still around. Oh yeah, she's still around. So I should send her an email, just like um, can I have my DVDs back, please? Yeah, why not? <laughs> that was a very good set as well, a very good box set. Yeah, why not? You know, might be might be an episode there. Um, all right, so I think perhaps this is uh, a good point to end our episode on the uh, two first. Uh, titles of the Whispering Corridor franchise, Whispering Corridor and Memento Mori. Before we close, is there anything you'd like to say, Jason? Uh, yeah, just uh, like uh, thank you for listening. And uh, oh, yeah, thank you, John, for a really great conversation about these films. It's yeah, really, likewise. Yeah, it's really nice uh, experiencing them again. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, if any listeners would like to get in touch, please do uh, on our social media accounts. And uh, yeah, I uh, hope you uh, enjoy these films. Yeah, it would be very, very nice to see these for the first time. So uh, like Jason said, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, please feel free to reach us at our website, heroic-purgatory.blogspot.com or through our Twitter at Heroic Purgatory, all in one word. Otherwise, this was our episode for this week. Uh, we're not quite sure exactly what our episode will be, but I, at this point, I think it's safe to say that we are close to the ending of our second season. 
and we'll see how that goes. But we'll, of course, we'll keep you updated on our social media as we plan our next episodes. Uh, but that's it. Until then, have a great time watching the movies that we talk about. And we'll see you hopefully in a couple of weeks. <laughs>